If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the third of our August 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or follow us at twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine. Coming up, we have... As time went on, of course, from the middle of the war onwards, this appeal, Hitler's personal appeal, uh, his popularity sank like a stone. That was Professor Sir Ian Kershaw on the end of the Third Reich. Shakespeare has a key part to play in British history, both the way that he defined Englishness and made the English think about themselves, but also, of course, he became a British playwright under under the rule of James VI and I, That was Dan Snow on Shakespeare's Stratford-upon-Avon. Now, what we've done this week is devote most of our podcast to just one longer interview with Ian Kershaw. But before we go on to that, here's a short advertising message. A History of the World in 100 Objects, the landmark series as heard on BBC Radio 4, is now published by Audio Go. Every day I walk through the Egyptian Sculpture Gallery at the British Museum, and every day there are tour guides speaking every imaginable language, addressing groups of visitors who are craning to see the object that I'll be talking about in this programme. It's on every visitor's itinerary, and with the mummies, it's the most popular object in the British Museum. Why? To look at, it is when you think about rain that falls for 40 days and 40 nights, you might just be considering the prospect of living through yet another summer in Britain. But of course, what you're really referring to is the biblical story of Noah, his ark and the great flood. The sounds of people working with guns. But these are guns of peace, not of war. They're being cut up, melted down, welded together and reshaped to make artworks in Mozambique. It's the first time in we this began series. with the noise of a dying star. And I want to finish with another cosmic noise from millions of miles away. It's the music created by vibrations in the sun's atmosphere. It's the noise of a new day. The complete series is available as an attractive box set containing 20 CDs and a 32-page illustrated booklet. For more information and details of current special offers, visit audiogo.co.uk. 
Thank you for listening to that. Now, on with the interviews. Our first chat is with Professor Sir Ian Kershaw, one of the world's leading experts on Hitler and the Third Reich. His latest book, The End, Hitler's Germany, 1944-45, has just been published by Alan Lane. And he's written the cover feature for the September issue of BBC History magazine, out now in the UK. In that feature, he explores why it was that Germany fought right up to the end in the Second World War. The magazine's deputy editor, Rob Attar, talked to Sir Ian. When would you say that the Second World War for Germany was objectively lost? Objectively lost, I think you could say already from December 1941. I think it was the beginning of the end. The events of December 1941, the Russian counteroffensive in front of Moscow, the entry of um, the USA into the war, and the widening of the war to the Far East, all those events that took place within about a week meant that objectively Germany, I think, um, was facing the prospect of a very long war which it could not win. So I think the war was objectively lost then. From a German perspective, of course, um, there's a difference between a war which was lost and a war which could not be won, and, uh, but where something could still be got from it. So there's still a long way to go then, but I, it, that was the beginning of the end. And at what point do you think a military force would typically be suing for peace? At what point, maybe in the Second World War, would a country normally say, we've had enough, let's negotiate? I think in this case, a logical time would have been after the successful Allied landings in Normandy, and um, certainly at the latest once the push came into, um, through uh, France in, um, and into the Low Countries in uh, September, um, but in June, when the Allied landing had, was successful in the West and when the Russians, the Red Army, had pushed through right into Poland in the East, that would have been a time when, logically, um, a country would have recognised that the war was now lost and um, would have attempted to sue for peace. And, of course, that is what the people in the German resistance around Stauffenberg wanted to do, and uh, they were by then themselves certain the war was lost, nothing could be gained by fighting on, and they wanted to sue for peace, which is the first thing they would have done had they been successful. But crucially, Germany didn't sue for peace, and I suppose the nub of the issue is, why doesn't that happen? Well, I think there are um, obviously a, a, a lot of factors that come into play, and um, it's rather than singling out one, I think we have to look at the, the bundle of factors and then see within those factors which, uh, which was possibly the most important. And um, two things which are often uh, looked to very generally, um, to me, don't quite work. One is the demand, the Allied demand for unconditional surrender made in, um, in, at the Casablanca conference in January 1943. Uh, this was one element in it, but not a major element in my view, because after all, despite that demand, practically um, practically all the German leadership wanted at one time or another to sue for peace, and they were prevented from doing so by Hitler's adamant refusal to entertain any thoughts of capitulation. So the second general thing is a Hitler. Uh, well, of course, that is a, a, a crucial factor in the equation. Hitler, it was the, the key figure, and he refused all the way through to consider any capitulation. But Hitler himself um, was, was, can't be the sole explanation. We have to ask them why people were still prepared to follow Hitler and to 
um, to go along with this this refusal to make any overtures towards a settlement, even when it was obvious to absolutely everybody that this regime was heading for the buffers. So um, when those two things are ruled out, we then have to look at a whole number of factors, which we can discuss if you want to do, but I mean factors like support for the regime, um, fear and um, repression, the fact that the Nazi leadership had burnt its boats and had nothing to lose from this, the fear of the Russians, which was very justified, and the structures of that regime, the way in which the Nazi leadership reinforced that the, the regime once the bomb plot had taken place and had failed, uh, the behaviour and the mentalities and the attitudes of the generals who were in charge of the military operation, um, and then the way in which the party itself was able to expand its hold over practically every sphere of activity in society. Not least then, we come down to the reasons why people were still prepared to fight on through some sort of inability to do anything about it. That brings us down to the structure of the rule and the nature of Hitler's charismatic rule. His own charismatic appeal had long since disappeared or was dwindled very drastically. But nonetheless, the structures of that charismatic rule were still in place right to the end and they prevented any opportunity from the elites to overthrow the regime as had happened in Italy in 1943 or to come to some collective opposition to Hitler and the, uh, the organizational space for that op opposition uh, didn't exist, nor was there any alternative source of loyalty, uh, such as in, uh, in Italy, in the Italian case, where Mussolini was toppled from within by his own fascist Grand Council in 1943, and there was the figure of the king there behind the scenes. In, it, in Germany, nothing like that, no organization capable of challenging Hitler and no, or, no alternative focus of loyalty. So putting all those together, you get a whole number of reasons why that regime was capable of fighting onto the end and actually never considered doing anything otherwise. So talking about this charismatic regime, what exactly did that entail? Well, it, initially, of course, it, it, it meant that Hitler's uh, popularity and the adulation that came to him from all um, sides of society, from all uh, avenues of society and from the, the leadership of the regime as well, this meant that he was then unchallengeably the head not only of the party and of the, of the, um, of the state but also of the government and also of the armed forces in a very obvious way. So there was no organizational framework there which, which existed beneath Hitler, no Politburo, no council, no junta, um, no organizational collective beneath, below Hitler. Um, now, as time went on, of course, from the middle of the war onwards, this appeal, Hitler's personal appeal, uh, his popularity sank like a stone, and by 1944-5, with the exception of a short-lived revival of popularity following the, following the failed bomb plot, his popularity was sinking. So by the end of the regime, we can guess, and this is purely a guess, that maybe only uh, maximum, say, 10% of people were still behind Hitler, though 10% of people who mainly held the reins of power in their hands. But the point I'm stressing here is that the structures of rule, which went along from Hitler's total personalized takeover in 1933 and 34, lasted right to the end, destroying any sort of, uh, any basis for organized opposition and fragmenting that, that the, the patterns of rule so that, um, that people were unable to come together and, and challenge Hitler in any form whatsoever. So it was a kind of divide and rule situation, really? 
Yes, though divide and rule makes it sound as if this was a very conscious devised policy, whereas in fact what I'm suggesting is that it was an inexorable development from the nature of Hitler's personalised rule that since he, since he obliterated and then eliminated the prospect of any reconstruction of any form of collective, the result had to be this sort of system where it was uh, the war of the jungle within the Nazi regime where no two Nazis could agree or could trust each other. So there was actual division and, um, and, and lack of integration at every, um, at every level of that regime, except that everybody was ultimately dependent upon Hitler for, for position for power and for the sort of authority that they had. You see that even in the case of Goering and Himmler, two extremely powerful Nazis who right at the last minute misjudged that and were ousted from the, from the party, from all their offices by Hitler, even in the dying days of the regime. So something like the Stauffenberg plot would actually be very hard to come about, really, even when the war was totally lost and Hitler was driving Germany almost to the abyss. It's very hard for people to organise and Extremely, because this was, of course, also a terroristic regime. So people were in, who were involved in that plot knew that if it went wrong, they would pay for that with their lives, as many of them did. So it was extremely difficult to organise a conspiracy. And because of the divisions there, because there was no obvious body that could form the basis of, a, of, a, um, of an opposition, um, then the, the dangers, but also the complexities and the difficulties of, of, uh, of organising opposition, evaporated almost to nothingness. So the Stauffenberg plot took a great deal of effort and one of the flaws of it, of course, organizational flaws, was that Stauffenberg himself had to carry out the assassination attempt but was also required to lead the coup d'etat. These were two separate things, but only one person could be found to run the, to, to do both of them. And eventually that turned out to be a weak point in, in, the, in the plot. But uh, it, we shouldn't underestimate the difficulties and the dangers of trying to topple Hitler. And of course, once that plot had failed, those difficulties were magnified because in all the positions of power, also in the Wehrmacht, loyalists were in charge and attempts were made then to infiltrate the Wehrmacht with Nazi principles, to dominate to Nazify the, the armed forces. But of course, if you were in the Wehrmacht in any position of authority then, it paid you to be a super loyalist after, 19, after July 1944. So the fear element was there also within the, within the Wehrmacht, within Wehrmacht leadership too. So is the idea of terror, internal terror is something that's been discussed a lot by historians about how much people are affected by that, but that must have played a quite important role in why people didn't rise up against Hitler and try and end the war. Well, uh, terror itself, I think, is, is a large part of the answer to why there could be no organised resistance from below. After all, in 1918, there'd been a mutiny in the armed forces, starting in the, in the Navy, and there'd been a gathering revolutionary momentum. Um, that was ruled out in 1944-45 by the levels of terror. This was a terroristic regime from day one on. But in the last stages of the war, this terror rebounded from, um, from the exported terror, which affected mainly, not, not solely obviously, but um, in large measure the countries outside Germany, rebounded back on the German majority population itself, bearing in mind even now, however, that the, the victims, the true victims of this regime, Jews, um, foreign workers, others who were decried as, as racially, um, uh, racially um, subordinates or, 
unacceptable. All these internal enemy groups, they were terrorized far more than the German major population, majority population was. Even so, ordinary Germans now in this last phase had to be very careful not to step out of line with a defeatist comment or a comment that would be interpreted as defeatist and then they themselves might well pay for that with their lives. So the terror was stepped up drastically as the level of consensus and backing for this regime declined in the last phase of the war. So I suppose the only body that might have been able to challenge Hitler theoretically would be something like the army. Why was it that the army carried on fighting and didn't use its military force against the regime? Well, for one thing, as I've said, organisationally it was extremely difficult to attempt to overthrow Hitler. There was no body there through which the army could come together and attempt. There was no junta or organised council. The, the, uh, the leadership of the Wehrmacht, the, the super, uh, high command of the Wehrmacht, was staffed by arch-Hitler loyalists. Uh, Field Marshal Keitel and uh, General Jodl were two of the absolute uh, Hitler adepts. They believed in what he was doing, they supported him to the very end. Um, beyond that then, uh, the armed forces leadership itself was, was not unified in that the leadership of the army was separated from the leadership of the, of the Wehrmacht of the armed forces altogether. And um, the, the, the generals, although they were not for the most part arch-Nazis, there were some arch-Nazis amongst them, for the most part they were not arch-Nazis, but the generals nonetheless um, never came together in a body, never got, had any organised uh, facility really to challenge Hitler. Um, so, but also there were other factors which meant that they would never dream of doing that. For one thing, many of them still regarded the oath they'd sworn to Hitler personally in 1934 as very important. For a second thing, more important than that even, the fact that um, a ferocious war was being fought in the East against an enemy which they believed would destroy Germany entirely. And they also knew terrible things that they'd done in the name of Germany in the Eastern Territories after 1941. And they knew the war in the East was a, a, was a war of no compromise and no concession, no quarter given or taken. So they had the great fear of what would happen in the event of a, a Soviet takeover of, of Germany. And the war in the East uh, helped to form a negative integration around Hitler, which linked up with the army, meant that they, they were prepared to fight on in the East, even when many of them were wanting to, um, to concede in the West and were prepared to, what might have been prepared to um, consider a surrender in, in the West, but not in the East. So the Eastern War also helped to forge the links with, with Hitler. And then also, simply the defense of the fatherland. This isn't a Nazi principle as such, but you can see how it blended into it, how patriotism fitted into that. Defense of the fatherland, defense of the homeland, and then ultimately defense of family, defense of property, defense of colleagues fighting alongside them, and finally, fighting for themselves alone. All these factors helped to make sure that the army uh, and the leadership of the army continued going right to the end. So and the people in the East, soldiers in the East, probably must, a lot must have felt tainted by association with some of the Nazi war crimes that they might have felt they were all in it together, really, and that if they stopped fighting, that once the Russians got hold of them, they wouldn't have a very nice fate. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, the, the fear was, as I said, very, very well justified. And um, when the Red Army did come into the East in, in, 19, in, in January 1945, the fate of the Eastern um, provinces of Germany was very unenviable. So the soldiers uh, fighting in the East increasingly knew what to expect. And as you said, they were aware, many of them, that 
um, horrible things had been done, and they themselves had sometimes been involved in these horrible things, and they were very fearful of what would happen if they themselves or their loved ones fell into, into Soviet hands. And I mean, as the Soviets came into the eastern provinces, the civilian population was then exposed to horrendous treatment. Uh, many of the women were raped, and some reckonings say that 20% of women were, were raped as the Red Army came in. Um, and many women, fearful of what would happen to them, committed suicide. There were some mass suicides that took place as the Red Army was on approach. So the fear there was palpable, and it was very different to the feelings in the West. The, um, the feelings in the West, people obviously wanted to keep the, uh, the Anglo-Americans uh, out of their um, country as well, by, by and large. But once those territories in the West started to fall into American or British hands, uh, word filtered out that the treatment of the local population wasn't as bad as all that. And so Nazi propaganda, which had been saying the West is just as bad as the East, that started to form very stony terrain indeed because people simply didn't believe it. They were hearing what had gone on in the West. So there wasn't the same level of fear at all in the West as there was in the East. And were there any people that had been sufficiently, say, inspired by the propaganda to still believe that the war could be won? Did some of the soldiers think they might still be fighting for victory or did they know the game was up? There were people uh, in, in every, probably in every unit right to the end who were absolute arch fanatics. Uh, so we, it's very hard to generalise. Uh, the, from all accounts, most people by, by the, we're talking now about, say, March and April 45, or February, March, April, the last three months of the war, most people were now um, resigned. Uh, they weren't um, rebellious, but they were uh, in the army too. They were resigned to what was going to resign to defeat. But within every unit, there were people who refused to accept this, who were fanatical, who carried on fighting, said the war is not lost, the Fuhrer's got some, some uh, ace up his sleeve, where it's only a matter of time before the, the miracle weapon comes in. Uh, there were even rumours about an atom bomb, which, which were spreading within the army, and people were expecting Germany to drop an atom bomb at some stage on their enemy. So there were people like that, be believers, right to the very end, but everything speaks of these being a, a tiny minority in the last phase of the war, and even from these people, from their letters home and so on, they say, well, nobody in, nobody in my unit believes me when I say this, but I'm sure the Fuhrer will pull it off still. So um, a lot of bravado, no doubt, but uh, still some true believers, but it, by this stage in, in uh, a small minority. Was there anything about the end of the First World War, was that impacting on people's minds at this point, that there'd been this shame of negotiated defeat in 1918 and the stab in the back, which the Nazis had talked about a lot? Did people want to avoid that happening? Did they want the war to be fought out at the end, perhaps? Well, of course, if you're looking at Hitler himself, that was uh, a key motive for him. He'd said all the way through there will be no repeat of November 1918, by which he meant the capitulation, the surrender of Germany in, in, at the end of the First World War, which he always said was a cowardly act. And this idea of November 1918 ran like a red line throughout his entire political career. There'll be no repeat, this November syndrome, there'll be no repeat of, of the end of the First World War. And it's far better to go down in flames than to, than to agree to a cowardly surrender. When you look round, even at the top Nazis, however, it's obvious that not many really followed him in this. Um, Josef Goebbels, the propaganda minister, was one of the few who were prepared to go down on the, in the big funeral pyre with Hitler. Um, 
nearly all the other top Nazis attempted to save their own skins at the last minute, to flee, um, to try to escape, to go in, in, into disguise and whatever, to try to survive. And lower down the population, I think the mass of the population uh, had no interest whatsoever in going down into history as, as, um, as martyrs or whatever. This notion of um, 1918 had little or no resonance with m the bulk of ordinary Germans. It was something, a figment in Hitler's mind in particular and some others like him who believed in this stabbing the back legend. But, but lower down, the further down you go, the less resonance that had. One thing about the stabbing the back legend, of course, is that in, um, in July 1944, following the Stauffenberg uh, attempt on Hitler's life, there was um, some talk within the leadership of the army about another attempt to stab in the back. And some people said that uh, this was a cowardly act because it was an attempt now by the leadership of the army to stab the commander-in-chief in the back when they were facing the enemy. These weren't Nazi generals necessarily were saying this. And later on, other people said when they were asked, uh, one general was asked in, in as late as April 1945 to um, to refuse to carry out orders, and he said that would be treason and so on. And um, when asked whether he would consider, in April 1945, consider an attempt on Hitler's life, he said, absolutely out of the question, you can't stab your commander-in-chief in the back when faced with the enemy. So these ideas, the stabbing the back idea, lasted right to the end. But as I said, I think for the majority of the population, that was a, an irrelevance by the time he came to march in April 1945. They just wanted the end of the war to come and the Americans and the British to get there before the Russians. There does seem to be something about the idea of duty playing a part here, which people often say is like a traditional Germanic trait, but like you said, the idea of people, even if they weren't Nazis, being horrified that someone would try and kill the commander-in-chief. was, And did that play a part in people wanting to do their job, bureaucrats, soldiers, right until the end? Absolutely. Duty was a, was a key element, and duty was um, something which uh, had been a, not a, a Nazi um, ideal as such, but it was an ideal that was educate into, into practically all Germans that they would do their duty in the armed forces or wherever they were for the state, for the fatherland, for whatever. The Nazis were able to utilize that and to exploit it, but they didn't create this sense of duty in the first place. And from that sense of duty, you can see how it mingled in with Nazi ideals. But um, from that then, this sense that whatever goes on, it's our duty to fight for the country, not for Hitler or for the Nazi party, but for the country. Uh, that, in objective terms, meant that they were still doing their damnedest to keep that regime afloat. So that um, uh, in, in the book I mention one uh, case of, of a leading civil servant who said in April, when he was asked immediately after the, the war, well, why, didn't, why did you work so hard? And he said, well, it, there's a war on it. It was my duty to serve the state. So it wasn't actually Hitler he was referring to there, or the Nazis, but his duty as a civil servant meant that he had to pull out all the stops he could right to the very end to serve his country. Serving his country at that stage was not too different from serving the regime because it enabled the regime to carry on functioning. And so this applied, this idea of carrying on, it wasn't just the soldiers that were carrying on, it must have been the whole bureaucratic administration, civil servants, everyone within, all the civilians within the Reich, were they all still just working their hardest? Uh, yes, they were. And um, it, it, it was... Uh 
I mean, we have to imagine this Reich getting smaller and smaller. So by April 45, it's not much more than a sort of sliver of territory right down the middle of Germany. Uh, but it was, um, the, the people who were still in position there were still working as hard as, as ever. And uh, without this efficient, uh, highly experienced, well-educated civil service, it's hard to see how that could have functioned in the way that it did right to the end. So wages were still being paid in, in March and April 1945, for example. A whole number of things were still carrying on. And the, um, the facing insuperable odds, uh, you know, millions of people now had no electricity, no gas, no water, and so on. The postal services are near collapse, transport are near collapse, but nonetheless, uh, administrators, civil servants, and so on, also in the armaments industry, they pulled the stops out to ensure that improvisation and that, that things continue to function after a fashion right to the end. I mean, whether that's a German peculiarity as such, or whether it would have been the same in this country is a moot point, whether faced with similar circumstances, the British civil service wouldn't have carried on doing its duty uh, to the crown and to the state in the similar sort of fashion. That's a, that's a, a you know, an open question, obviously, but in this case, a uh, highly experienced civil service certainly helped to make the regime, uh, helped it to continue functioning after a fast stress, after a fashion, because things were collapsing and imploding, but it carried on ticking over right to the very end. And I suppose there must have been some assistance from some of the Nazi ministers who must, the people under Hitler must have helped the state carry on. Well, they, they were crucial, and um, what happened really was that after the bomb plot had failed in July 1944, there was a sort of internal restructuring which was quite crucial. Um, from that time onwards, the, beneath Hitler, power f was largely exercised by four people, and they were all... Um, three of them were fanatical Nazis, and the fourth was, was a um, hugely uh, ambitious... Uh, technocrat of power, that's Albert Speer, but the other three were Henry Himmler, the head of the of the SS and the police, um, Josef Goebbels, the propaganda minister, and Martin Bormann, the head of the party administration and Hitler's personal secretary. And these four largely controlled uh, Germany beneath Hitler in, in these last months of the war. And uh, Goebbels added to his propaganda control now the uh, position of plenipotentiary of total war, within which he saw it as his duty to raise manpower for the army. He raised about a million people by Christmas to serve in the army. These people were often young, inexperienced, raw recruits. They weren't the hardened uh, soldiers that had fought in the earlier part of the war. Even so, without those million people, it would have been impossible to fill the enormous gaps that were being caused by these horrendous losses. And remember that in the last months of the war, Germany was losing about 350,000 men a month. Quite incredible to think of it in that scale. Uh, Speer, for his part, performed miracles of organization in enabling that, um, that uh, armaments machine to carry on producing uh, weaponry for the armed forces until almost the very end. Um, Martin Bormann showered out uh, edicts and, and uh, orders and zipped up the party administration, party organization. So the party now controlled um, large sections of what went on in, in, um, in society. So practically every avenue of ordinary life was controlled by some or other party organization. Bormann was in charge of that. Um, and the fourth person, Heinrich Himmler, in the last stage of the war, as we know, he was trying, making fearless to the Allies, trying to um, 
work out some sort of future for himself after the war. But even he didn't break with Hitler until the very end. He was still fearful. Hitler didn't break with Hitler until the last days. And Himmler was not only in charge of the uh, the, the, the police and the um, SS, but in the from July 44 onwards, he was placed by Hitler in charge of the uh, the reserve army or the replacement army. That's where the bomb plot had originated or been executed, I should say. Um, Himmler was now placed in charge of that, so he now had his foot through the door of the armed forces itself, and was it was through him now. Um, it was much more difficult to contemplate any type of resistance from within the armed forces because he controlled now the, the replacement army as well. So, in all these ways, the the the, the party had. Um, taken over huge areas of German life and the, um, the party itself Bormann tried to revitalize it in a way and said this is like the period before the seizure of power in 1933. It gave a new lease of life to some of the party fanatics and at the lower levels beneath Bormann there were these say 40 or so Gauleiter, the regional chieftains, who as central power collapsed had more and more power in their own hands and more and more power then fell down to the desperados at the local level each of whom was in a position now to determine effectively life or death so as the regime was collapsing more more power passed the party and its organizations and within the party the fanatics were able to often to dictate what was going on at the grassroots level right to the very end so really we with it all pointing to Hitler, the only real way it seems that the war might have ended earlier would be if Hitler had realised. Well, did he realise that the war was over? Well, the first time that anybody heard him say the war is lost, which is why it was such a shock, was on the 22nd of April 1945, just over a week before his suicide. And in a sort of fit of, um, of temper, he then admitted on that day the war is lost. Incredible that nobody until then had heard him say the war is lost. Even Hitler must have realised after January when the Red Army swept through the eastern provinces and took, uh, took the main industrial area of, um, of, uh, of Silesia, um, that left on basically only the Ruhr by that stage then, uh, and a bit in the Saarland, which was soon fell as well. So even after that, Hitler himself must inwardly have realised that the war was now lost. Until then, um, the Nazi leadership held to the notion that something could be got out of this war. The Allied coalition would fall apart. It was an unholy coalition of capitalism and communism. It would break apart at some point. Um, Hitler, some evidence suggests, was still fed duff information about the weaponry that was en route and thought that there was still some super weapons to come. But uh, by the autumn of 1944, then the, the weapons which had been used, the V2 and the, earlier the V1, had not proven to be war-winning weapons. The last card for Hitler was probably the Ardennes Offensive of December 1944, which had temporary successes against the Americans, but then after a few days petered out and the Germans were then ultimately forced back and defeated in that. So once that was last card had been played in the West and helped to denude the forces in the East, which were then overrun as the Russians came in, it was pretty obvious to all and sundry that the war was now irredeemably lost. Uh, but up until then, uh, I think Hitler and um, most of the Nazi leadership and quite a number of the generals had still held to the fiction that something could be got out of this war if the Allied coalition could, be, could face some sort of defeat somewhere which would then break it apart.
And there was no chance at all that Hitler would ever contemplate suing for peace. Absolutely none. Um, after all, he got nothing to gain by doing so. His own life was at an end. I mean, whatever happened, he would have. Uh, he, he, he would. He wouldn't. Um, contemplate being captured, least of all by the Russians. So for him, it must also have been clear that the, the end, when it came, would have to come with his own suicide. It was only a matter of timing. So since he himself had nothing to lose, fighting on for him was, was quite easy. Um, the question is not, hit, not why Hitler fought on, but why those around him still felt prepared to back his leadership and to fight on when even where they were the orders that he was he was issuing seemed to be crazy where it was obvious that defeat was looming and so on but nonetheless in the absence of alter an alternative or a framework from which to challenge hitler uh, they fought on and just to go back to it in the italian case which is uh, you know hitler's sort of twin dictator in a sense mussolini was toppled in 1943 by an organization that he himself had set up by the fascist grand council and there was the king of italy who at least nominally posed an alternative source of loyalty in germany these two things didn't didn't exist and so if you first of all getting rid of hitler was was extremely difficult and secondly you had to construct something there which would take hitler's place that was attempted in 1944 but after that there was no agency which was capable even of of thinking along those lines of constructing any alternative to to hitler's leadership so i end up by suggesting that this is charismatic authority without charisma let's say the mm. hitler's popular support had dwindled but the structures or or the disintegrative structures which had been set in place early on continue to exist right until the very end. And so just thinking about this in the grand scheme of things, what, I mean, what kind of devastation loss was there in this last 12 months which could perhaps have been averted if the German leadership had accepted that the war was over? Well, if, if, um, if the bomb plot had succeeded, for example, and, and then a successful suit for peace had been carried out, uh, millions of lives would have been lost, would have been saved. Millions of lives would have been saved. Um, in Germany itself, half of the military uh, losses and more than half of the civilian losses took place in the last 10 months of the war. But if you actually look across Europe as a whole, then probably the losses in those last 10 months of the war were not dissimilar from the losses in the whole of the First World War. So that's the scale that we're talking about, the magnitude of, of uh, death and destruction which could have been avoided had Germany sued for peace uh, at an earlier date, or had the war, it had been possible to end the war earlier than it did. So um, it, it was a, one of the, the fighting on to the end um, was devastating for Germany, devastating uh, especially for Germany's um, victims, and caused the death, the destruction of the country, the total occupation of the country, and as I said, the death of perhaps eight, maybe even ten million people, hard to come up with a, a total figure, but around that magnitude. And is this unprecedented in history? Have any other regimes fought on so blindly to the end? In modern times, I, I th the only parallel that occurs to me is Japan, which had some sort of structural similarities to Germany, but some major differences. Uh, Japan in Notify, which was also faced, of course, with a demand for unconditional surrender, but that wouldn't explain solely the reasons why Japan fought on either. 
And um, in very recent times, we, we've had, of course, uh, other regimes that have fought on, but in very different conditions. And Saddam Hussein, for example, the, fought on to the end, but the war, the military, the fighting war lasted only about three weeks there. Mm. So it's hardly to be compared with the Second World War. Um, and, and now in, in, in Libya, we have a sort of faint parallel, I think, where Gaddafi is refusing to, um, to back down and says he'll fight on a stay in Libya and fight to the end. Whether it will come to that or whether he will be overthrown from within remains to be seen. But normally the pattern is that an, or even an authoritarian regime is actually either overthrown by revolution from below or more commonly by a putsch from within, by a coup d'etat where the ruling elites decide that, this, that the, the ruler is taking them to absolute ruination and therefore they need to get rid of him. In Germany, the revolution from below was ruled out largely through terror and through the inability, the total inability to organize anything. Uh, any revolution needs organizational capacity. A revolution from above, a coup d'etat, um, was ruled out by, again, the lack of organizational capacity and the lack of uh, any sort of um, framework within which to challenge Hitler himself and so forth. So the regimes, t the regime elites tied themselves really to a leader who was taking the country down to absolute perdition. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. That was Rob Attar talking to Professor Ian Kershaw. You can read his feature on the final days of Germany in the Second World War in the September issue of BBC History magazine. His book, The End, Hitler's Germany, 1944-45, is published by Alan Lane. 
If you're a history book lover, you might be interested in the new BBC History Magazine book club that we've just set up. The idea is that we pick an interesting new book each month and send out one copy to five club members, ask them to read it, and then get back to us with five questions that we then put to the author. We'll print the author's responses on our website. It's all free, of course. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash a reader to find out more and sign up. Next, I've been chatting with historian and television presenter Dan Snow, who is presenting alongside Sean Williams a primetime BBC One history series called National Treasures Live. For five weeks, the show is touring the country, coming live from some of Britain's finest heritage sites. I asked Dan to preview the third episode. For the third week of National Treasures Live, uh, you're going to Stratford, is that right? Yep, we're off to Stratford. Uh, Stratford-upon-Avon. Stratford-upon-Avon, of course, yep. Um, we are looking... We, we, you know, we've done a lot of military stuff. I'm often, it's often said that I err on the side of the military too often, so we're, now we're going to do some good, solid cultural history, and we're going to look at Shakespeare, the bard. Mm. Uh, and it is. It's wonderful. And this is the point. Shakespeare, of course, the study of Shakespeare is history, uh, as well as being English literature and all sorts of other things, and just pure enjoyment and drama. You know, Shakespeare is, has a key uh, part to play in British history, both the way that he defined Englishness and made the English think about themselves, but also, of course, he became a British playwright under the under the rule of uh, James the the sixth and first, uh, and his role in in becoming a, a, a national bard of, of of the union of the two crowns. So he's hugely important. How he's been used subsequently, how he was used, his his words have been used uh, throughout our history by politicians and charlatans and salesmen and actors and lovers and generals, uh, and so he's a, it's such an exciting topic to cover. And we'll be looking at a dig in Stratford-upon-Avon that is allegedly the house that he lived in when he'd made all his money and went back to Stratford to die. Brilliant. What else is in, in this programme? Any other highlights? Well, I mean, we are going to deal with this. It's important to sort of deal with some of the big questions. Something people ask me all the time when I'm out and about and making speeches or whatever is people say, did Shakespeare really write his own plays? So, and this is an area that's been trodden over by some fairly dodgy characters and hacks in its time, but we're going to have, we're going to have a little look and see what the history actually is, and we're going to have a, a, a piece on that. We're also going to have Ruby Wax uh, talking about Victorian asylums. We don't want, we want the whole episode, we want the whole program to be obsessed with Shakespeare. So Ruby Wax is really interested in 19th century uh, medical history, really. Um, and actually, she's found out that um, there is method in the madness. There is um, there's, uh, the, the Victorians aren't quite as brutal and sadistic as we might think, and some of the, there's the early signs of lots of the cognitive behavioural therapy and things that we recognise today. The third episode of National Treasures Live is on Wednesday, twenty four August at seven thirty pm on BBC One. Now, do keep your comments coming in. I'd be particularly interested to know what you think about having one longer interview as we've had this week or indeed any other thoughts, so just email podcast at historyextra.com or contact us on twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine. If you don't follow us on Twitter or Facebook, you're missing out on our extraordinarily interesting messages where we regularly post links to historical news stories that have come our way, so maybe you'd like to do that. That's it for this week. Next week we'll have ancient slavery and Victorian heroes. It's going to be good. I entreat you to listen in.